Good morning. How are we doing? Is the microphone working? I think I'm hearing it come through. Well, happy Thanksgiving. Um, hope that you all have had a good weekend so far and uh, continue to have a good Thanksgiving. Um, I'm trying to see uh, through this fog if my, uh, I'm, one of the things I'm thankful for this week, uh, my uh, father-in-law and sister-in-law are in town, um, and I think they're with my wife and our newborn, who I'm also thankful for. It's going to be her first Sunday here, gathered with the people of God, and I get to preach. So hopefully she'll take good notes. Um, but they're, uh, they're on their way. Um, but yeah, I'm just super thankful uh, for that. I'm thankful to preach this morning, to proclaim God's word to you. My name is Ryan uh, Boussier. I'm a uh, pastoral apprentice at Church 21. Grew up in Texas, born in Toronto. Um, and so my body temperature is always in flux, um, but, and uh, under these lights, it's no different. Uh, but yeah, just excited about Thanksgiving in general. Um, growing up, um, who, who's, is there anyone in here that Thanksgiving is like your favorite holiday? Yeah, a few of you. Uh, how many it's Christmas? Just curious. Now, I didn't plan on doing a, a poll, but it looks like Christmas won. Uh, Thanksgiving was a holiday growing up. I didn't really like that much, um, and I actually had to celebrate it twice because I was Canadian and living in America. So I'd celebrate, uh, yeah, Canadian Thanksgiving and American Thanksgiving, um, and it just wasn't a, a holiday that I enjoyed. But as I've grown older, partially I didn't like the food. I was foolish, um, and when I grew up, I put foolish things behind me. Uh, and so... Uh, now I love Thanksgiving, and not just because of the food. If, if I could have my way um, as an adult, I think it would be a good thing, a, a, a great thing to make Thanksgiving uh, like a monthly celebration, and not, not for the sake of food, even though that would be amazing, um, but to celebrate Thanksgiving uh, once a month or once a week, once uh, a day, um, I think the reason for that is Thanksgiving is it's just a joyful experience, right? Like nobody is ever miserable. You've never been miserable in your life and thankful in the same moment. Like in, in that same headspace, maybe you've had things you're thankful about and things that you're sad about, but in the same moment, it's not possible to be feeling overwhelmed with Thanksgiving and to be sad. We want to be thankful. Um, but the thing about thankfulness is like, so often we go through life with this thing we desire uh, and we miss the things that we could be thankful for. We're focused on the things we don't have, the things that are going wrong. Uh, we don't stop to let the, thanks, the thankfulness sink in so the thanksgiving never pours out. So I think thanksgiving's really good because what it does is it causes us to stop, to pause, and to look at specifically the things that we're thankful for. Our hearts are kind of like cups and... Uh, if you never fill a cup, there's no overflow. Thanksgiving is the overflow uh, of contentment in our hearts. And so this morning, my, my aim, my goal, is that this sermon, that these words, that Paul's words that we're reading, would bring about a thanksgiving that is an overflow of deep contentment in your heart. That's the aim this morning. We're talking about contentment, which is something that, uh, th there's nobody in this room that would say, man, I but you know what I don't want in life is I just really don't want to be content, right? If you've met that person, they're crazy, right? That everybody wants contentment, 
but so few people really have it, right? Contentment is this thing that feels like it's just constantly out of reach. Maybe we get it for a moment, uh, but it's such a vulnerable thing, right? If it's based on our circumstances, things can change, right? The, they, they write songs about this. In a New York minute, everything can change, right? It, all it takes is a phone call, a disaster, and the, the house of cards you have can crumble. It's a vulnerable thing, and it, it just fades away so fast. So we either, we have it, and it's there for a little bit, or we have it, and we don't even enjoy the contentment we have because we're so busy trying to protect the things that could give us contentment that we don't stop to actually enjoy them. It's this thing that remains out of reach. And so what I want to ask this morning is, is it true, or is it possible to find true, lasting grounded in reality contentment. A true, lasting, grounded in reality contentment. Like it's possible to be content just because you're like aloof to, the, to life, your head's buried in the sand and, uh, and you're just not aware, right? They say like ignorance is bliss. That contentment exists, but it's based on a lie and it's not, it's not lasting, right? It's not grounded in reality. It's, it does little good to be uh, really comfortable on a train heading for a collision. Uh, but that's where sometimes we want to escape and just block out all the things. We want a contentment that's based on reality, that's going to last, that's going to stick with us and see us through to the end. And so the question is, is that even possible? Uh, I, I would bet there's some in here who've, who've come to the, the point where they don't feel like it really is. They've just given up. I, is that contentment possible? Well, it, Paul claimed that it was possible. Um, he claimed it in this passage, and I'm just going to read it again because it's a short passage. It's a uh, few verses, um, and then we're going to jump in. So Paul said this in Philippians 4, starting verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let me pray, um, and then we're going to chat about this. Um, Father God, I uh, just confess that I need you this morning. Um, I cannot... Uh, aff- change anyone's hearts. I can't uh, effectively communicate your word without your grace, and I just thank you for the grace that you give. Um, Lord, would you open our hearts? Would you cause us to see truth that changes our lives and sustains us? Uh, We love you and we need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, uh, what we want to get into is we're asking this question, is lasting, true lasting, grounded in reality contentment possible. What we want to do is we want to get into Paul's secret, right? He said he found the secret to contentment. And so as we're trying to dig in and, and, and get into that world, into that secret uh, con- uh, to contentment, the first thing that we need to do is actually understand what that contentment is, which might seem really like an obvious thing, but that's exactly why 
It's super important that we do this. Uh, It's possible to read this passage and to come to it with our own idea of what contentment is, read that into the passage, and just completely miss Paul's point, which would be totally tragic, because this contentment is a beautiful, life-changing thing. So we don't want to come to it and say, I I already know what contentment is. Uh, Paul is going to have maybe some nuance here uh, that's going to affect what we're going to. You could think of contentment or Paul's secret that he calls it. I've, I've got the secret to contentment. The secret is kind of like a key and contentment is the door. Um, it does little good to have the right key and be standing outside the wrong door. I don't know if you've ever experienced that before. We, we don't want to come to the wrong contentment, the wrong idea of what that is with Paul's secret because the secret won't get us through that door. We want to go to the right door and find the right contentment. So this morning, uh, I I want us to see two things about this door, two important aspects of Paul's contentment, and then we're going to turn that key together uh, if the Lord wills and uh, dive right into what God has for us. And so point one, this is the first thing I want us to notice about Paul's contentment, is that Paul is not emotionally bound to his circumstances. Let's look at verse 11 and 12 again. It says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul is not emotionally bound to his circumstances. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Apostle Paul who's writing this, um, Paul was a missionary. Um, that word apostle actually means one sent with a message. It's this word for a missionary. It, it also means that he had this special authority in the early church, but, but he's a missionary. And what a missionary is, uh, is somebody who's sent to preach the gospel and plant churches, right? We talked about planting churches. Uh, it's something we're passionate about because it's, it's how this thing is here, this gathering, and it's how it's been happening since the beginning of the church. Paul was one of these guys, and as he was planting churches, as he was preaching the gospel in his missionary efforts, he had to support himself. He had to have a way to eat food, right, to pay for things in his life. And so Paul would do this in, in two ways. One was he was a tent maker. Sometimes he would, he would work and, and sell tents uh, to, to pay the bills, right? Um, other times he would depend on support, usually probably a combination of these two. But churches would actually come into, into uh, partnership with him and support him. One of those churches is the Philippians that he's writing to. And what Paul is saying to them as he's actually addressing the fact that they've been supporting him is, look, even if you didn't support me. I have a contentment. I have a satisfaction that isn't dependent upon my circumstance. Even when there's not meals to go around, even when there's not food on the table, my contentment is untouchable. And he's not just talking about suffering, like in theory, right? Because we could read this and think, okay, cool, you've got the secret, Paul. Um, I, I, rec- I mentioned I recently had a newborn, uh, little Ruby, um, and uh, before Megan and I uh, had this baby, before she was born, um, we actually met uh, at a camp. We worked at a, a kid's camp, and uh, we were counselors over like, we'd have like groups of 10 crazy six-year-olds, and we'd have to keep them alive and lead them to around camp and make sure they got changed into all of their different 
bathing suits within a minute time. And, you know, we learned all these tricks, like I bet you can't do it in 30 seconds. And they're like, oh, this six-year-old, you bet them to do anything and they'll do it. And so we, we learned all these tricks and it was easy for me outside of parenthood to feel like, man, I've, I've done this. I've, I've had 10 six-year-olds. Like, I know the secret. I, I can handle this. But I'm four weeks into parenting, and my theory has been demolished by sleep deprivation, right? Like, if you are in here and you think, oh, I can do it, you, you, can, you can, you can do it, but you're going to be exhausted. You're going to be tired. I'm only four weeks in, right? I know it's just going to get harder. Um, but, but reality can sometimes take our theories and just rip them apart. Uh, it's easy as we're reading this, as we're listening to Paul to think, yeah, you might have the secret, Paul, but that was 2,000 years ago. You don't know my circumstance. You don't know my situation. Maybe you're in here and you're uh, a student uh, studying in Montreal and you're just overwhelmed with the sense of inadequacy to please your parents, to gain their approval. Maybe you're in here and you're a victim of real sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, and you're just trying to move forward. You're just trying to move on, but you can't seem to leave your past in the past. It haunts you every day. Maybe you're in here and you're a parent and you are doing everything you can to rescue your kid from his or her own self-destructive tendencies and you just can't do it. It feels like it's just something that you can't, it's out of your hands. You might be a husband or a wife and you're serving your spouse with everything you have trying to break the clouds of depression and you're just overwhelmed with a sense of the fact that you have no control over this. Everything you give into it, you can't break the clouds. Maybe the debts are so high that you just don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. There's no way out of this one that you can see. I can testify it is really easy when the weight of life gets bigger, when the, the, the responsibilities are weighing on you, when uh, things have to happen, when you have your own failures to deal with in the midst of that, it is easy to feel completely overwhelmed. And what I want to tell you uh, is that your trouble and your trauma are real, and they're uniquely yours. And when Paul is saying this, he, he's not taking away from what you've experienced. They're real. They're yours. Um, but Paul has his own real and unique trouble and trauma. Paul is not a stranger to suffering. I want to give you a snapshot from Paul's own words. Uh, I believe this is 2 Corinthians 11, uh, starting in verse 24. This is Paul talking about some of the things that he went through. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Anybody been beaten with rods here? Once I was stoned. He's not talking about going across the street to the, the dispensary, right? He was, had stones thrown at him. Uh, that's, that's how they would kill people. And he was stoned in Praise the Lord, he didn't die. Three times I was shipwrecked. If I get shipwrecked one time, I'm done with boats. Three times Paul is shipwrecked. In a day, a night and a day, he's adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, 
danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, lots of danger. And in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's my, the pressure, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So Paul's not a stranger to suffering. He's experienced real, severe suffering. And as he's writing this letter to the Philippians, he's in prison. He's writing this in jail. And, and his thought, his hope, is that he's going to honor Jesus either by being released and being faithful with the rest of his life on the, on the earth or by being faithful unto death. And he's fine with either of those. Paul's not a stranger to suffering. And, and when he says, uh, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, this is what we have to understand. He's credible. He's credible. If I come up to you and your child is on life support and I say, look, I have this secret, you might not trust me, but trust Paul. He has suffered and he's credible. He's intimately familiar with being in need. But it's a bit strange. It might seem strange that he's talking about this being in need when he also just said, I'm not talking about being in need. Uh, that, that's kind of odd, but Paul has this weird category or this interesting category for needs that are not needs. Um, the, the, he's got needs that are needs in one sense, but in another sense, they're not, they're not really needs. He's not really speaking of being in need. Um, he, he's got essential human needs like food, right? If he doesn't eat, he's going to die, but his contentment doesn't rest on not dying. His contentment doesn't rest on a full belly. He's got a contentment that's untouchable from his circumstances. So we might hear this uh, and, and say, okay, fine, I can just, I'm just gonna tune out all the negativity in my life. I'm just gonna think positively. I'm just gonna muscle through uh, I'm, I'm just going to have contentment with who I am. I'm just going to work on me. Or uh, maybe we even emotionally disengage with the world in that with our circumstances, we're just going to be unmoved. We're just going to be numb to these experiences because they're unreliable. Or maybe you're a Christian in here, follower of Jesus, and you've read this passage and you think, I have to have a, a contentment that is not bound to my circumstances so I need to be I need to numb out the things of this world I need to not engage either of these things would be a huge mistake this is not the contentment Paul's talking about it's not an emotionally disengaged from this world from this contentment that's the second point we need to recognize Paul is not emotionally disengaged or Paul is emotionally engaged with his circumstances so in Paul's day there was actually a group that did have a view of life. They thought that contentment was to be emotionally disengaged from circumstance, from, from pain, from pleasure, um, from circumstance. And uh, you might have heard of them before. They're called the Stoics, right? So we talk about somebody being really Stoic and they're like, they're just unmoved. It's hard to move them emotionally, right? Uh, the World Series, their team wins and this is them. Uh, their, their family member passes away, this is them. 
They're just not feeling, right? Or if they are, it's not evident. Well, that, the reason we call someone Stoic is because the, the Stoics believed that contentment was found in disengaging from our circumstances and finding a contentment that was in virtue. So that word contentment is actually a word that Paul is borrowing from them. They thought that if I can find a contentment that's in being virtuous, uh, living rightly and bringing my life into alignment with the will of God, the divine reason, uh, then I can have a contentment that circumstances can't touch because my contentment is inside of me. Uh, but p- the thing that is it's so important that we recognize is Paul is not writing to the Philippians saying, guys, I found the secret. Let's become Stoics. If we can just disengage emotionally and find satisfaction in virtue, we're good. We, that's the secret to happiness. Like, th- that might even to you, you might hear that and think, that sounds really religious. That sounds really good. But it's the opposite of what Paul preaches. It's the opposite of what he thinks. He can't be saying that, we know, because literally in verse 10, if we put that back up there, he says this. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, now at length that you have what? Revived your concern for me. That's a circumstance. Well, guess what I rejoiced in the Lord greatly means in Greek? It means I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. He had a circumstantial rejoicing. This isn't uh, devoid or, or against circumstance. He's, he's celebrating things that are happening in his life. He's moved by them. We see in other places that he's mourning the sickness of a friend. He doesn't, uh, he's not so heavenly minded that he's, just disengaged from the reality that he's in. That's not what he's talking about. His head isn't buried in the the sand or stuck up in the heavens. He's engaged with his circumstances. With the virtue thing, we might think, well, but, but maybe that's still a path that we can have some sort of blend. Let's be satisfied, content, specifically in virtue. There's nothing wrong with taking delight in living virtuously. We should, but Paul's tried that as a road to contentment. He's tried that as a road to satisfaction and it didn't work. Uh, let's look at Philippians 3, 7 through 8. This is, so he, he tried this before he was a Christian, not as a Stoic, but as a Jewish man. Uh, he lived a really, really religious life, a really moral life under the law, and this is what he says about it. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, he's talking about uh, as I stand before God I, I, or stand amongst others, I have reason for confidence in my virtue and my morality. This is why. Uh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? The best of the best is what he's trying to say. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. These are bold words. Paul tried virtue more vigorously than any of us probably have ever done in our lives. Um, He was a Pharisee. These are like the spiritual elite of their day. They would build, they made a law of God's law in Judaism. They they made rules on the outskirts or to keep themselves from even getting close to breaking the law. They would go above and beyond. So like normal Jewish person might give 10% of their income or would give 10% of their income to the temple, um, to the priests. And and these guys are giving like 10% of their spice rack. Like they were 
tithing on their dill and their cumin. So these guys are spiritual elites. They are very religious, very moral. He says he was blameless, but this is what he says about all that he had to gain through that. In verse seven, it says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What he thinks about these things he had to gain, which he had a lot. He had a claim. He was respected. Uh, he, was, he was the elite of the elite in his community and all that he had to gain through that. He says it's rubbish. The other translations say dung, poop. That's what he thinks of all that he had to gain. It's worthless. It's loss. Meaning if, if he comes to the end of his life and all he has is all he gained through his righteousness, through his good works, he loses. Ultimate discontentment. Paul is not finding contentment in virtue. He's taking this Stoic word and he's Christianizing it. He's showing what they got close to. Christ gives the real thing. They've got the wrong door, even if it's the right idea. This contentment is not found there. So where is it? What's Paul's secret? What's his key? This is, this is what he says, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be hungry, I can suffer, I can be shipwrecked, I can uh, be beaten with rods, I can be stoned to death, I can literally die. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we, uh, in if you follow our Instagram, I asked this question about this verse. This verse is one of the most misused verses uh, in the world um, by Christians. Uh, I asked if the Habs are playing the Maple Leafs and they both embrace the reality of, of Philippians 4.13, who's going to win? Um, if they both say, I can do all things through Christ, who's going to win? The answer is whoever plays better. Because this verse, rather than meaning I can win in everything I do and I can accomplish everything, it means I can still be content even when I lose. Right? Put that verse on your letterman jacket. Put that verse, like keep, say that verse before your game, but recognize your contentment isn't tied to your success in this life. It's not tied to your circumstances. You are unbound emotionally from your circumstances because you can do all things through Christ. Christ is the key. Looking back at, um, well, to, to ask that question, or we could say Christ is the key, and then the question is, well, how, right? Like, if that's the key, how do I turn it? How does this actually work in my life, right? Because it's, it's one thing to say, yeah, you can do all things through Christ, but what does that actually mean, right? When you're suffering, that, that's not enough. It, it, it becomes a trite phrase, I can do all things through Christ. How do we turn it? This is what he says in, in, in a chapter earlier, verses uh, eight and nine of, of verse of chapter three says this. This is going to be key in understanding. It says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So we've said that already. Jesus Christ, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and follow, keep, this is where it continues. It says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness 
of my own. That means not having a right standing with God, a virtue of my own that gets me into good standing with God. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So this is what Christians believe. When we forsake all to gain Christ, when we say, I don't want that, I want you, and we surrender our lives to a new king, and we say, I'm putting my hope, my faith in you, Jesus, as my king and as my savior, our circumstances change. Uh, We are counted righteous immediately. What that means is that all of the bad stuff on my record, all of the sin, all of the brokenness, which the Bible tells us all of us have a dirty record. None of us are clean, right? That's why we sang about God making us clean at the beginning. None of us have a clean record. When we put our faith in Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross erases our guilty record and his perfect record gets put onto our account. And we're accepted based on Christ's righteousness, not our own. That's what Paul's saying. I don't want my own virtue, and that's all. If that's all I have, I've got nothing. I want to be counted righteous in Christ. I want to have his righteousness. Because that righteousness can't be taken away from me. It doesn't depend on circumstance. It doesn't depend even on internal circumstance of the virtue that I can muster up. It's a gift given freely to me. This is what happens when we become Christians. This is the good news, what we call the gospel. And it changes everything. It has massive implications for our contentment. So earlier we mentioned that Paul has needs that are not needs, right? Uh, They're needs in one sense, but in another sense, they're not. Why, how can that be possible? Why can you have that contentment that isn't bound to your earthly circumstance? It's because of this gospel and its implications. The implications of this gospel is that Paul can see life through at least three lenses. Uh, He's got new goggles to look through and see his circumstances. This is what I mean. Uh, The first one is he's got this temporary lens. This temporary, on the ground, what he's experiencing in the present moment lens. And and in this lens, Paul rejoices, right? He rejoices that they're giving to him in support, that they're helping provide for him, that God's providing through the Philippians. He mourns when his friend is sick, right? He mourns when he leaves uh, churches of people that he loves, not knowing if he's going to live because he's going to miss them. He, he experiences this lens. He's not afraid to experience things in this lens, but he's not bound to the temporary lens. This is a very human way to be. And Paul is human, but he's experiencing this in an otherworldly, unbound way because of these other two lenses. This is the next lens that he experiences. It's what we could call the theological lens. It's a big word, just theological, the study of God. He sees things through the lens of what God is doing in the midst of these circumstances. So uh, he can look at his circumstance, he can look at his pain, his big, deep, terrible pain, and know that it's not purposeless. It's not without purpose, and it's not punishment. He's not suffering because God is mad at him and hates him. No, he can look at it through this theological lens of because of the gospel, he knows that God uses our pain to grow us into greater dependence on him. 
And that when we depend on God more, we're made more like Jesus. So we're able to show Jesus more to the world. We're able to have deeper fellowship with Jesus. Paul actually says there's a fellowship of suffering with Jesus, that there's a fellowship of his sufferings, a deep intimacy that comes only when we suffer and depend on him and find that he's dependable. This is very much what I think he's speaking of when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What does Christ strengthen us for? For endurance in this. And he gives us the endurance through a contentment that's accessed outside of this temporary lens. We know that God's at work even in our pain, even in the worst pain. And one of the ways, one of the primary ways that he strengthens us through his spirit is with this third lens, this eternal lens is what we'd call it. That Paul knows the end of the story. Paul knows how this is going to end up. He knows where he's heading. It's a good ending. It's a good story. It's amazing the, the movies that we can watch um, with so much tension, so much like uncomfortable. You're watching people make terrible decisions and we go and we watch this and the thing that gets us through it is we expect in most cases there's going to be a happy ending, right? We, we know the ending is coming and so we can make it through. Well, as Christians, we've seen the end of the story. We've seen that Christ is coming again, that he's making all things new, that one day we're going to look back and every single loss will be gain, Every single pain will, will give weight like, like fuel to our everlasting pleasure. Joy eternal, not despite the things that happen, but in some crazy way by God's providence because of the things that happened, because of our circumstances. In another letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, he, he says it this way. He says, all things work together for the good of those who love God. We know that all things work together. It's that same universal scope that he says, here, I can do all things. Why can I do all things? Because they're all working together for good. Why can I do all things? Because God is working every ounce of it together for my good, even in the present. There's grace for me in the pain if I'll depend on him. And I'll see, I'll find the assurance of his presence with me saying, I'm gonna see you through to the end of this and it's gonna be better than you ever imagined. Not despite this pain, because of this pain. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So the call today, um, what my hope and my prayer for you today is that this contentment would settle in. I want you to see your life through these lenses. You have the temporary lens and maybe that's all you've been seeing it through. Maybe you've just been seeing the pain but there is Another way to see it that is grounded in reality and is more lasting. It is more sure. Pain can't touch it. It's death proof. We could say with the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So for the student in here following Jesus that we talked about, the one who can't seem to find a, just feels completely inadequate in pleasing your parents, what do these lenses say to you? They say that you're, you're at the wrong door. You don't need to, to, to live with pleasing your parents as the ultimate goal. God already loves you. You have a father who loves you before your life is pleasing to him. 
And the only way your life is going to become a pleasing life to him is by his grace and him walking you through it. And he's eager to walk with you into that. Free of needing to people please as a source of your contentment. An ability to to seek the pleasure of our parents in a holy and good way that isn't dependent on their approval for our ultimate satisfaction. A contentment that can't be touched. For the person in here, the victim of abuse, unable to move on because of the trauma that just haunts you. What does this say to you? It says, your circumstances, your eternal circumstances are secure. Justification for or punishment, retribution for the sin that was done against you. God cares. He sees it. He cares mightily against the sins committed against you. And his response is either that he already paid for it on the cross, Jesus paid for your abuser's sin, or your abuser's going to pay. Somebody paid. The bill has been paid. You can forgive. You can move on. You can know that justice will be done in the end of time. And you will be healed. A day is coming when God will wipe every tear from your eye. That's what the Bible tells us. You can hang on in the midst before you're healed and know that healing is coming. It is inevitable, if not in this life, in the life to come. You are not bound by your circumstance and God cares about your suffering. The parent striving to protect their kid from their own self-destruction or the, the spouse who, whose husband or wife is just stuck in depression. What does this say to you? It says, you are powerless, but the one who is powerful to change their circumstance loves you. He loves you perfectly. He can handle this. He can work good in it. And not only can he, he is working good in it. There is a purpose in it. You can lean into Christ for strength. Keep loving them. Keep caring about that circumstance. But know the end of the story. God is going to use this for your good if you're a follower of Jesus and for his glory. Hang on. Keep seeking him. Keep depending on him and ask him to do what only he can do in their life. You are not your, your child's or your spouse's savior. Only Jesus can do that. And he's willing. He's willing. To the person buried in debt, you have a father who owns everything. And, and the Bible tells us, actually Philippians, we don't have this verse up there, but just a little bit later as Paul talks about this, he says uh, to the Philippians who have supplied him, he says, my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of, his riches of glory in Christ Jesus. So Paul can say that I don't have all of my needs met and yet God's going to meet every need of yours in Christ Jesus. Why? Why? Because God knows what your true needs are. What you need most is that key. It's Christ. And God is working your life towards an end that is going to bring you, if you're a follower of Jesus, into greater dependence on the one thing you need for ultimate and everlasting contentment. God's not going to give you something you don't need uh, to keep, that's going to keep you from Christ. And so when God withholds, we know it's mercy. And when he gives, we know it's blessing. And he invites us to keep asking him to give the things, the relief to our pain, but to trust him in the waiting. 
that it's mercy. Life, our circumstances, our true grounded in reality, everlasting circumstances, it is well with our souls. Joy, hope. The Lord is bringing resolution. We have great hope. And so my hope today is that this, your true circumstance would sink in today and it would overflow in thanksgiving. That you would know the hope to which he has called you, that you would know the circumstance that you're in. But you can't be thankful for what you don't have. And so there's, there's people in this room, um, maybe this is your first time hearing about this Jesus, maybe you've heard about him a million times, and you don't know him. You don't, this isn't your true, lasting, grounded in reality circumstance. Your circumstance is that you are living for pleasure in all of the wrong places. Every other door opening it, trying to find satisfaction, trying to find joy. And the Bible tells us that as we go to other things, other than the thing we were made for, God, that, that, that is called sin. We fall short and it places us separated from God in condemnation. It's the bad news of our sin. We can't be thankful for what we don't have. The good news is that Jesus lived his perfect virtuous life, the only one who ever did, died a sacrificial death and rose so that you could have that contentment, so that you could have that contentment forever. He just invites us to surrender our lives to him, to put our faith in him, to confess our sins, ask him for forgiveness, and he will adopt us into our family. And in an instant, your circumstances are changed forever. The virtue will come later. He does care about us living virtuous lives, but he's going to walk us into that as children who don't have to worry about being kicked out for not being good enough. No, he, if, if we're his kids, he'll raise us. You know, when my daughter, she starts acting up, soon enough it will happen. I'm not going to kick her out of the house till she starts acting good. She's still my daughter. I'm the one who's supposed to raise her and grow her into maturity. That's what God does for his children. And he invites you to become one of them. So I'm going to pray for us. The band is going to come back up. Um, Dwight's going to come lead us in a time of response. But I want to invite you to give your life to Jesus today. And if, if you're a Christian, I want to invite you to see the door as it is, to walk through it, to take the key, to rejoice in your circumstances. They are good. They are good. Even though they are painful, they are good. Let me pray. Father, Father God, I just thank you that you are a merciful God. You're a good God. You're a good Father. You're a God who sees our pain. You're a God who cares about our circumstances. You're not satisfied with our circumstances. You're working them toward a perfect end, but we're not there yet. And I thank you that you are intimately involved in this world. You're intimately involved in our lives. God, I pray for the Christians in this room, the followers of Jesus, that you would revive our hearts, that you would give us the strength to keep going, to endure suffering, to be faithful, because you are being faithful to us in the midst of all of this. <laughs> because you are taking every loss 
and turning it into gain? Would that sink in this morning deeper than it ever has and would it overflow in true thanksgiving, in true joy? Lord, for those who have not known you, I pray they would know you this morning. They would surrender their lives to you today. They would not leave this place without giving their lives to you and trusting in only your sacrifice as their only hope for eternity, Lord. And that their circumstance would be changed. That at the baptism service coming up in a few weeks, we would be able to baptize them and celebrate new life in new circumstance, changed forever, untouchable by the pains of this life together. Would you do that this morning, Lord? We love you. We thank you for the things that you're doing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you guys.